Hi, you're listening to Hungry Magazine from Chicago, Illinois. Four, three, two, one more time. Hey there, this is Mike Nagret, and welcome back for another month of Hungry Magazine podcasts. In this podcast, I sit down with Bridget Albert, the chief mixologist for Southern Wine and Spirits. Albert, along with her co-writer Mary Baracco, has just released a new cocktail book called Market Fresh Mixology. Enjoy the interview. I think the thing that was that really struck me, which was like most striking about this book, was the, the picture of your great aunt Tilly in the back of the book, it, and you know, just sort of I think you have a lemon her lemon cello I recipe do. in there. I do. Um, and I know you come from a long line of bartenders. Bartenders. Yeah. Um, I wonder what, you know, you mentioned in the book, of course, you talk about, like, her lavender eyes, and Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, what kind of, what the stories are of her, and and, and the stories even of growing up in in a family of bartenders, you know, if there's some things that are really particularly striking to you, or what that was like. Yeah, absolutely, you know, well, my grandmother, um, I almost consider her a bar back, you know, she would assist her mother, but she would jump in and bartend, and she was, I believe she jumped behind the bar when she was 12, Tilly jumped behind the bar when she was 10, worked until the day she died. And then, um, well, what I can tell you about the women in my family is, is that they bartended at a time where women were not absolutely were not allowed to be, be be patrons at a bar. So it was really interesting. And they worked in a coal mining town of all places in Coal City, Illinois. So you know, being a female and, and working in a male-dominated industry in the early 1900s, uh, late 1800s, really tough because typically the women that would enter bars during that time. Um, I hate to say it, we're usually prostitutes. Sure. Um, they definitely didn't man the bar. So you had to be tough as nails, and you had to know your stuff. You know, you had to know what whiskeys that people were drinking. You had to know how to make a lot of your own spirits because their bar was open also during Prohibition. Um, they really weren't messed with because of, I don't know if you've ever been to Coal City, Illinois. I have. But if you have blink, you'd miss it. So they were able to stay open. Um, they were also immigrants that came over, and this is what they had to do to survive. And one of my most favorite stories that my grandmother would tell me about her mother was that when the ice trucks would come in, you know, they would come in like once a week or once every other week, depending on the weather. Um, my great-grandmother would grab um, her ice pick, and she'd run outside, and she would kind of scare the crap out of her husband, like, oh, no, there she goes again with her ice pick. And she would chisel the ice for the week, you know, right off of the black truck. And um, something my grandmother has told me, it's always stuck with me, you know, when they worked at a time when ice was so important that when, when they would put it in a glass, and like typically the guys were drinking whiskey back then, and they'd say, you know, my ice is seasoned. You know, after they'd finish it, don't mess with my ice. Because the ice was so thick and so hard, and it would take so long for it to melt. And what's really cool is that it mirrors what's happening today behind the bars, you know, even here in Chicago, like places at Sepia and... You know, Violet Hour and all these great places that have like the big blocks of ice. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, now you got people hand chiseling. At hand Violet chiseling, Hour just like my great grandma used to do. Yeah. you know, it's the just... cola draft machines are like the the huge thing now because they get these big uniform ice cubes or whatever. Yeah, but you know, they had to be really, really tough. And I know uh, my grandmother; she lived above the bar for many years, and she would always look down in the knots of the wood to see what was going on down below, and. Um, they just had to be just just tough cookies, man, to make it as female, you know, female immigrants, um, especially here in Chicago. It was a, a tough time. It's a really tough time. It was a time when they were struggling. You know? Is that why you started out, or did you start out sort of as a means, as a job to make money, or was it because it was part of family kind of, history? Well, you know, it's, it's it's in my blood for sure, and I did grow up, you know, knowing about it and seeing the pictures, and I have a great picture as well of the bar that I use in my trainings at the academy mm-hmm. that I have here in the city. But um, I, I was actually a cocktail server for about a day. 
I didn't like it. I wasn't good at it. I didn't have the ability to like flirt with the ugly old guy. <laughs> I just didn't, you know? And um, I remember a bartender got sick one night, and I'm like, man, can I jump back there? If it means I can wear like pants and tennis shoes and get out of this monkey suit, I, I want to go back there. And honestly, I went back there, and I never left. And um, I just started researching opportunities and, and started researching cocktail books. And my, a lot of them were recommended from my grandmother. You know, a lot of them were given to me by my grandmother as well, even like Mr. Boston. Like your, mm-hmm. your ABC stuff, you need to read. You just study if you want to do this job properly. And you need to incorporate an amount of passion because no matter what you do, if you want to do it well, it doesn't matter if you're a bartender or a computer geek, whatever it is, you know, you have to have the passion and drive mm-hmm. um, to turn it into what you want it to be. And that's what my grandmother really installed into me. And when my husband and I moved to Las Vegas, you know, I met my mentor, Tony Abaganum. And I will never forget the first time I met Tony. I just, I'll never forget it. He's up on his stage and he was addressing all 200 of us bartenders at the Bellagio, as well as about 600 cocktail servers. I looked at my girlfriend, Diane Sylvie, and Diane still works at the Fontana Lounge in Las Vegas. And I said, Diane, I said, I want to be him. That's what I want to do. I come from this bloodline. This is what I need to be doing. So I told Tony, I said, you know what, man? I will cut your limes. I'll schlep your garbage. I just want to learn. And so, you know, he gave me, you know, some some great direction as far as cocktail books to study. I took his academy at the Bellagio, um, as well as one at Southern Wine and Spirits of Nevada. And I still study to this day. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm always studying. You have to. It's kind of like some chefs will like look at a guy like Charlie Trotter and probably do the same thing, or they'll make a pilgrimage to work at some exactly restaurant. like whatever. Yeah. You and can then you do. have guys like Tony and the or Dale DeGroff, or you know, there's this handful of really great people who've kind of set the bar, and mm-hmm. you know, now you are part of the next generation and mm-hmm. this, this group of people. And it's amazing because it's it's sort of. This is probably a really exciting time to be in the spirits world now. It's a I mean, great time to be in the spirits world. You know what's interesting, I guess, for me, is that like, as somebody who really loves food and I'm really passionate about it, it took me, like, I would say, like, maybe really only two years ago is when I finally started to get it about drinks. You know, for me, it was always like a Maker's Mark and Coke or, right. you know, whatever it was. And, you know, and you still, you go to, like, I, you know, I, I remember going to Sepia uh, probably like six months ago. You know, Peter Vestinos is behind the bar, mm-hmm. and he's making these great seasonal drinks. And he's got this menu. He's very active about it, you know. And he's still, I'd say, like, three out or four out of five people just are, like, Grey Goose and Tonic. Or, right, right. You know, vodka. And, but these people are clearly serious about food because, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to see Piana, you know, on a weeknight or something. And it's so interesting that it's so hard, even for people who are passionate about food, to make this bridge to like, well, you should also drink like you eat. You should. Do, do you have any sense of, of why that is? or? Well, I think because, um, and this is going to sound really goofy, but, you know, um, prohibition happened in our country, and I think that we're still recovering. And I say this a lot, and sometimes people, you know, kind of laugh, but, you know, we've been drinking in quantity <laughs> for a long time, and it's just very recently, you know, I'd say, you know, maybe in the last, you know, seven years or so, where we're just kind of starting now to drink in quality when it comes to spirits, when it comes to cocktails. And, you know, you said, you know, this is a great time, you know, to be working with spirits and in the beverage industry. Well, yeah, you know, because of the resurgence of classic cocktails. And I have to tell you, one of the great really exciting things that's happening right now is, you know, when I first started bartending, the only time I saw the chef, the absolute only time I saw the chef was at the end of my shift. And at the end of my shift, chef would come out and he would give me maybe a hamburger or a leftover steak or, you know, whatever he had an overabundance of leftover from dinner, and I would give him a beer. And that was it. 
Now you see the bartenders kind of meeting the chefs halfway, and they're sharing recipes about purees, or maybe you know the kitchen's helping them make purees and syrups, and allowing the bartender to now you know bring in the seasonal ingredients that the chef is already using. So it's our job as bartenders to start educating our guests sitting at our bar. And letting them know that this phenomenon is happening, and it's on us to let them know, and and to, you know, to give them samples of things, you know, um, at at your bar if you're making a great infusion, you know, hey, you know, try this. This is what's in season. This is what we're doing here, and you know, I know that you love, you know, your beer or your, you know, vodka tonic, whatever it is, but here I have this great menu, and let me tell you about it, and let me share you the stories about some of these classic cocktails that are on this menu as well. Um, it's important, but it's going to take a lot of reprogramming. It's like the hamster, sure. like yeah, or it is. or something like that. You got, you got to be absolutely active about is. it. Absolutely is. It absolutely is, and I really feel it's because we're recovering. You know, and and during uh, right before prohibition, it sounds kind of funny to say, but bartenders were like rock stars. You know, mm-hmm. we really were. A lot of times, we were the mayor and the sheriff of a town. A lot of political decisions were made at our bars. A lot of. Uh, uh, rock, you know, uh, actresses and actors came to our bars, a lot of important people, kings and queens as well. And then when Prohibition hit, it was all the best bartenders that were here in the United States that went over to Europe to work. Mm-hmm. So when you hear all these great cocktails, you know, like for instance, you know, you know, the Savoy Bar and over at, you know, Harry's Bar in Paris, France, those are all Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making these great cocktails. And so, you know, we, we're just catching up with a lot of lost time right now, but I'm really glad that it's happening. Yeah, we lost a lot of our institutional knowledge. We did, absolutely. You know, it's not all about, you know, shot and beers and bombs. And I have to tell you, I didn't know what the hell a bomb was until I moved back here. It's just so funny. Down to really, we need you to create a bomb. I'm like, great, what is it? I'm excited, like a flavor bomb. They said what it was. I'm like, yeah, no, I won't be doing that. We need you to kick up an apple teeny. Yeah, what is that? Make it really more neon green. Yeah. No, no thanks. So. Uh, it's interesting that you point out this idea of, of chefs becoming partners as part of that, which I think is interesting because it reminds me, you know, Adam Seeger at National Absolutely. Was telling me how, for him, it was the fact that when he met Randy's wife and Randy was like, you know what, you have the keys to the walk-in. Yeah. You know, it was this idea of, you can use anything I have, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that was like really what set, set Adam off, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, it, it, it's almost, it, like anything else, it's a good partnership. You know. It's a great, it's a great marriage, a great partnership. It's not have, happening everywhere, but there is definitely a large momentum behind it. Mm-hmm. Even just the fact, you know, um, that you know, a year or so ago, when, when Tony and I did Iron Chef America, mm-hmm. and what a moment to be in the same ring as Mario Batali, and and have, getting the same respect from the staff and the crew, and them not asking us. You know, you make us some cocktails too, or anything ridiculous. You know, they knew we were there to play, mm-hmm. and I think that that was a big, big turning point for bartenders everywhere. And I've been told from bartenders that I meet from all around the world, you know, thank you, thank you, and Tony for having, you know, the courage to get up there and to do that for us. Because you know, once the chefs recognize our momentum, there's no, there's really no stopping with the stopping us because that's who we work with every day that's who we depend on to get our fresh produce to get our fresh juices to point us in the right directions you know take us under your wings and and let's learn a little more about the culinary world so we can keep incorporating it into our cocktails you know so it's not always it doesn't always have to be you know a great guessing game 
you know, when you're creating um, beautiful cocktails. Since you brought it up, what was that experience like? Uh, <laughs> it was stressful. <laughs> I bet, I bet. It was very fun. It was great. It was cool. Um, it was just really cool to see Tony, man, in Kitchen Stadium. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have to tell you, when I saw him, Tony and I both started to cry. And we were hugging each other, and the producers are like, hey, this is a battle. <laughs> like, you don't like each other. Like, it's absolutely not possible. And yeah. um, it was, you know, if I never do anything else, it's okay. Because what was the most surprising cool. thing about it? Um, the most surprising thing about it was that it, it's very intense. It's definitely timed. And that hour goes by real fast. I think that's what was most surprising. And, you know, they don't give you any juices or anything. If you want tomato juice, like I was hand-juicing tomatoes. You know, whatever you need, you have to do by scratch. And there are so many cords on the floor because there's a lot of cameras and mics in your face. And it's just super stressful and very intense. But um, what a great experience. What's it like to sort of stand in front of that panel and have them like judge you like immediately like get that kind of feedback yeah so it was great it was really fun it was intense you know knowing you have tony i'm going against tony and tony brought a pot still mm-hmm. and mario batali but you know when i was in front of them i just just uh poured out my heart about the cocktails and hopefully hoping that they would respond in a good way for the most part they did and um, it actually was a lot of fun. I have mm-hmm. to tell you, that was a very fun part of it. Because, like, the competition part is over. I can breathe. All you do is talk to these people, and uh, it's up to them. So There's been some debate about the terminology, about what you call somebody who mixes behind a bar. Yeah. You know? I think some people have sort of backlashed against the idea of mixologist. Mm-hmm. Or then there's bar chef and bartender. I wonder, you know, like, what you prefer and, 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 you know, even what your kind of thought on that debate is. Um, with that. I, I, I have some strong feelings about that, actually. You know, I prefer, I, I like the term bartender. It's been in my family for a long time. To me, that's the best gig there is, period, amen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, the term mixologist just sets you apart a little bit, meaning that um, hopefully it's when it's time you become a mentor and you really have embraced the art of mixing the cocktail. So there is a difference. You know, you're not behind the bar anymore necessarily slinging drinks at people or anything like that. And it, it's not a term that would be associated with somebody who's just working at a shot in beer bar. But somebody who really embraces the craft and understands um, classic cocktails, the fundamentals, which is really important. It's, it's a lot like what the chef goes through. You know, they have to know their basics before you can start bringing in the esoteric ingredients or creating anything original. Um, bar chef, I'm not really too fond with that term. To be honest with you, I think that you're a bartender, and when you're when you're you know kind of uh, mixing some originals, and and you know, you're a mixologist. It's a, it's the art of mixing. I'm really excited to let you know that um, the USBG, an organization that I'm part of, is working very hard to accreditate the word mixology, mm-hmm. and that will be happening within the next year. I mean, I guess part of it too is that. Some like you said, in some ways, it's about setting apart from the idea of somebody who doesn't really take the craft seriously. But also, maybe that bartender has had a negative connotation, but it shouldn't. Is it what shouldn't. you're saying? It shouldn't. You know, it shouldn't. When, in order to be a bartender, you have to be a lot of things, and I don't think that a lot of you know, I don't think that um, maybe the the uh, average person realizes what it takes to, to do that job. It's a tough job. It's a physical job. It's an emotional job. You put up with a lot of bunk behind the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you always have to be politically correct 
You have to always be the person's friend. You have to, you you have to know about. You have to carry <laughs> lots of loads on your back, and you definitely have to uh, know about world events. Know what's going on in the sporting world. Know what the weather is outside. What it's going to be today, tomorrow, and the rest of the week, and be able to answer everyone's questions about everything, and be able to deliver a fantastic drink without making someone wait, mm -hmm. and then hope that they return the favor before they leave or when they leave. That's you know? funny because that reminds me of like. As I've met farmers over the years, you know, farming is always traditionally thought of as like sort of this blue collar occupation. And it's like when I meet these farmers, it's these, these guys that have to be meteorologists, they have to be geologists, because they have to know what's going on in their soil, they have to know what's going to happen with the weather. I mean, these guys are brilliant, you know, yeah. it's not, they're not just, you know, putting things in dirt and waiting, no. you know, no. and, and I guess it's, it almost sounds the same way, you know, with bartenders, it's like, it, it's such a skill set. It is, it's a skill set, and, you know, at the same time, you have to keep your, 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 your space very clean and very workable, you have to be able to work with the person standing next to you, I mean, it's a, <clears throat> it's a tough gig. I think, you know, and I think that lends a lot of credence to what you're saying, is, your book. I mean, Market Fresh Mixology. I mean, yeah, there's a martini in there, but it's a martini with caviar on the top of mm -hmm. it. I mean, these are drinks that are pretty serious. I mean, you're making liquor infusions. You're doing, you know, different kinds of fruit, simple syrups. And in many ways, it's like cooking, you know. Sure. And it's this function of, you know, even if you don't like the term bar chef in some way, you're, you're very much a chef or you're, you're looking to balance flavors, sweet, sour, you know, umami, whatever it is. Yeah. In the same way. I mean, this is, this is some of, the, I mean, it's very accessible, you know, I don't want to give sure. people the wrong idea, but it, it's also, it's also, a, it's, it's definitely, it requires a lot of some work. Sure, sure it does. But I have to tell you when I made these recipes that they're really dedicated to, um, the non-bar geek. <laughs> mm -hmm. So to my friends, who every single weekend when I show up at their home, they're like, yay, what's she making? She's here. And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, I just want to sit down and have a beer. I don't want I'm off the clock this weekend, guys. And so when I, when I created these recipes, I really had um, the majority of my family over to my home, as well as my friends, as well as Mary Barranco. And I thought, you know what? Um, if y'all can make it, anybody can. You know, let's all make these together. Let me know, is this something you would serve to your friends? Is this something that when if I'm not here, you can make? Because if you can make it, then I know that it's successful. Mm -hmm. And so it was uh, really kind of like a, kind of sounds kind of cheesy, but like a, a, just a, a love story to my friends and family mm -hmm. who love great cocktails but don't particularly know how to make them. So um, I wanted to make it very easy, but at the same time be able to serve something very beautiful and very tasty. The other thing about this is that it's a seasonal mixology book, which sure. is sort of revolutionary. Yeah. You know, almost all the books are sort of like thousand drinks to like oh, I know. help your friends or you yeah. know, like how to get over depression with these five hundred yeah. drink recipes. You know what I mean? A thousand the, and one martinis. It's, it's a simple idea, but it's a revolutionary idea. Yeah. Why do you think it's taken so long to get there? Again, is it a prohibition thing? Is it a yeah. I think it's just, uh, it's something that I've always incorporated into my cocktails for sure. It's something that um, that I believe very strongly in. It's how we eat at my home. You know, you we do visit the farmer's market on the weekends. We do visit our local farmers. We always have since I was a child. So it was kind of a no-brainer to me to incorporate it into something that's very personal to me, you know, creating some cocktails with, with what I've always done. Um, I, I think that right now it's it, it's something that, we're doing behind um, a lot of bars across the country as well. You know, a lot of us are visiting our, our farmer's market, which it's about time. You know, it's really great. Rather than depending on our chef, 
we're also, you know, going down the street and seeing, seeing, you know, what we can bring back into our, our homes behind the bar, which is really great. But, but for me, um, it's just something that, that's been ingrained in me as a kid. You know, my mom always uh, shops seasonally. We have always depended. We, I live in Shorewood, Illinois. I don't know if you know that, but I live in a farming community, and um, we, ju- we just got a target. Like, there's, there's nothing out there to let you know the way that I grew up. You know, my parents had a tab at the local store, right. and that's the way I grew up. And so it just made sense. Like, I'm going to stick with what I know rather than what I don't know, and I know about freshness. I know about seasonality, and what's going to taste good in in a cocktail. How do the the classic hardcore people feel about this philosophy? Do you have any sense of that? I mean, you know, like a guy like Dale DeGroff is very smart, and he's he's really forward to the profession of of drinking Mm -hmm. and spirits in a way. But I I don't know if I'd see... I'm sure he believes in the spirit of seasonality, but Mm -hmm. I don't know that you see him making, like... You know, I don't know if you put an avocado in his margarita like you. Yeah, that I don't know. But I I can tell you that um, Dale has seen the book, and and he's given me a lot of praise, and he's been very kind, which is great. And and I know that you're talking about the people that are my mentors, and and this is something they have also ingrained in me, is using seasonal ingredients, you know, looking at your lemons even. You know, is it is it a, is it good enough to put in? You know, to make your sour? Does it need to be thrown away? You know, how do you decide if a lime is great for a margarita? And this is something that they preach. And so it's I think it's absolutely, you know, it makes sense to what what our godfathers are doing in this industry. Absolutely, sure. you know, using premium spirits, using seasonal ingredients as well. Yeah. So one of one of the things that I was struck by in the book, and I mean it's pretty typical of almost all books. It's you specify a spirit, but you don't specify a particular brand. Mm-hmm. I know, of course, you work for Southern, and you know maybe there's conflicts there, or maybe it's, I don't know what it, the choice to do that was. But I, I guess one of the things I think about is, and, and I know you know this, is that you know if you if you look at like seven different gins, mm-hmm. they'll have seven different flavor sure. profiles. And so, was there any temptation to specify? No, you know why? Because I wanted the, this gave me the absolute freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. And what's cool about my book is that it is completely separate from what I do at Southern. It's completely separate. And in order for me to keep that separate, and I wanted to keep it separate, was I wanted the freedom to be as creative as as I could ever be. And this book is really for the consumer. And I'll tell you what, you know, it gives the consumer the freedom to use what's already in their liquor cabinet and to kind of play around with that and use things. I always say, you know, follow your palate um, to the grocery store. Follow your palate to you know, the farmer's market, and trust your taste buds. So, you know, you may like a very heavy juniper gin, and that's fine for you, but I may not, right. you know, so I can use what I like. And that's cucumbers all the reach. Cucumbers, <laughs> yeah, yeah, cucumbers in the reach for a while, you're right. But, um, but I think it just gives you, you know, the opportunity to use what you love, and you're not restricted to maybe something you can't find at your local grocery store either. So one of the things that's interesting is, you, I, you were the first American woman to compete in the Bacardi mm-hmm. Martini Grand yeah. Prix, which you know maybe some people will know, but if they don't, it's like sort of the Olympics or the mm-hmm. Super Bowl for yeah, that's crazy <laughs> for bartenders. Yeah, um, and you did really well there, right? You took mm-hmm. a silver. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What was that? That experience? was incredible. Well, just to back up, the training was like it was definitely like training for an Olympics and bartending. I can tell you, Tony actually came out here to Illinois for four days and sat in my kitchen and drilled me for about 12 hours every day. 
and that was enough to make someone insane. You know, I mean, that was that was that was like this isn't fun anymore. I was looking forward to going to Italy. Now I'm you know scared, and this is really really hard. And um, I was actually required to practice at least four hours every single day, no matter what was happening on my day. I had to block out that amount of time. And then I would also take my cocktail. It's kind of funny, but to my husband's poker games because I needed an audience. Right, right. And like they're like, oh, Jesus, you know, can you make something else, some other cocktail? I'm like, no, you just have to. I have to keep making the sixty-two just over and over for like four hours, guys. Sorry, but um, how long did you do that for? Months, months probably for about four months, a long time. What year was this? Two. This was in two thousand and five. Okay. Mhm. And you're only allowed to compete once in your life, so it was really thrilling. And and um, you know something Tony always told me as well, and something that I I follow is to keep things simple, not to worry about what other people are doing, not to be intimidated by other people's garnishes over there, because the Europeans really know how to make some extraordinary looking garnishes. They're just beautiful, and so I kind of didn't think I had a chance. You know, when I, I knew I did a good job, I didn't mess up on my technical. I knew my cocktail tasted very good, and when I finished, I was just kind of, whew, you know, good, I'm done. And so my husband and I, when we went to the awards ceremony, I'll just never forget, you know, they they called my name and I sat there and my husband's like, you need to go up there. And I'm like, no, nah, no, I don't. That wasn't me. And they called it again. He's like, Bridget, you won. And, and I, of course, started to cry immediately and called Tony and my mom and my dad. And it was a great moment. It was a great moment, I think, for female bartenders. It was a great moment for American bartenders. And... Um, I was just so, it was amazing. They can't drink amazing. a garnish anyways. Yeah, you can't drink a garnish anyways, but it was very, very cool. The drink that came out of that was the 1862. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you talk about a little bit of that, the inspiration, what's that like? And I'm curious where the name comes from. 1862 was the year that Bacardi was created, and it's the Bacardi Martini Grand, Grand Prix, so I wanted to give them some props, some respect. <laughs> um, it's, right now it's actually on the menu at the drawing room, which is really exciting to me to see, because that's a very special cocktail to me, and it was an aperitif competition, so I had to keep that in mind. And um, that was made with the, uh, the Martini and Rossi Bianco Vermouth, which is very unused here in the United States. It's a little bit sweeter than a dry vermouth, it's a very, I don't know if you ever had it, but it's really quite delicious. Yeah, I don't know if I have. It's really, really good. And I use uh, passion fruit, uh, fresh lemon, uh, orange carousel, and then Asti. And so it's just a very nice way, um, really very nice way to really start um, your meal. You know, one of the things you alluded to was the, I, we only talked about you were the first American or female American in the Bacardi. Locally, we've you know we've had sort of a resurgence of really successful female bartenders like Debbie Beak and mm-hmm. Jennifer Contraveos, mm-hmm. and you know I'm sure I know you've had a role in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if not even just through inspiration, is it harder or is it is it similar to the chef world for for women bartenders, or is the playing field a little more even? You know, what's that like? Coming from, I was in Las Vegas for a long time, and out of 200 bartenders, there were three female. Coming to Chicago, I was pleasantly surprised to see that there were more females behind the bar, and that was just interesting to me. Uh, for me, I do try to make it a non-issue. You know, I'm just going to go in and just try to make some awesome cocktails and, and rock the house. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, a lot of times when you're a female behind the bar, you do sometimes put up with a little more, you know, sure, stuff sure. <laughs> than maybe you would like. Yeah. But I also think it makes our skins a little bit tougher. Mm-hmm. And you just have to learn to to kind of suck it up and roll with it and know that you're there to make your cocktail shine and to give someone a pleasant memory because that's what you're doing at the bar, mm-hmm. creating memories for for your guests. So. 
I mean, you have a lot of recipes in here, and, and maybe it's one of the recipes in here. But if you're trying to introduce somebody who's like a skeptic about the idea of fresh cocktails, um, and, and also maybe to get them to be a little participatory so it's something that they could do or they could make, mm-hmm. um, where do you start? That's funny. I get that. I come against that weekly with my job. You know, trying to get my my accounts and my clients to go fresh, and I think the best way to do that is to do a sour mix example. So I always have them make their own sour mix. I bring my lime press, my lemon press. Let's make it together and let's taste it against what's store bought. Let's read the ingredients on the back of the store bought, and then let me read you the ingredients, but with the sour mix here. There's two things, three things: lemon, sugar, and water. I can't pronounce half of the stuff that's in the bottle. <laughs> it's the color of green Gatorade. And then now, and then, and then, and then yeah, yeah, I can't spell it and I can't read it. So, and then let's make just a simple sour. Let's make a bourbon sour with both, and that speaks volumes, volumes. You know, so just taking it just right back down to the basics because a lot of people don't, are maybe aren't sure how to make a sour mix. They didn't realize how simple it is. You know, you can make it at home. It's just like making a lemonade. And I think that's where really where it starts with the basis of most cocktails. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that you're really effective at, and I know that it's sort of a passion of yours, is you're really into the history mm-hmm. of cocktail and drinks. And, and I know that's something you teach in your in your USBG class. Uh, you know, and there were a few stories in the book, and, and I thought, you know, the one I... And I don't even know if it's a historical thing, but, you know, you mentioned that the Kaiparina and the Kaiparushka, mm-hmm. you know, they're the only cocktails that are shaken, muddled, and poured without strength. Muddle, shake, and dump. It's the most unfussy cocktail in the history of cocktails. Do you have yeah. any sense of why that is? Is that because it, it has sort of like a peasant origin? It or does. Do you well, you know, it has a peasant origin, and I think that they just want to keep it simple. You know, it's not, it's, it's hot where that cocktail comes from, you know. And um, they just keep it really basic. And I don't think it always has to be very esoteric and complicated to be a very tasty cocktail. Mm-hmm. You know, and the beautiful thing about that is is you can incorporate almost any seasonal fruit into that cocktail, and it'll taste, you know, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it's a great um, kind of an empty canvas. Mm-hmm. But what's Maybe what's one of your favorite stories about a cocktail origin in history or, you know, something that you really just... It's, it's one of your favorite stories. One of my favorite stories is probably the mojito because it's the most misunderstood cocktail. It's like the redheaded stepchild of all cocktails, I feel, because bartenders do not like making them. And it's misunderstood that maybe it's, you know, I think people think it's like 20 years old. And, that, and I love talking about the mojito. It's, you know, it's over 100 years old. Mm-hmm. It's a classic cocktail. It's an ultimate classic cocktail, if you ask me. And, and it's made with herbs, you know, mm-hmm. over 100 years ago. And the story goes, you know, it was made at the La Boquito do Mario Bar over in Cuba. And Ernest Hemingway made it popular, like, in the 1940s and 1950s as he moved his way to Miami. And he'd actually jump behind bars and teach bartenders how to make it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a cocktail that came before that that was called the Dragon or the Drake. And that came from the 1500s. And that was made by a pirate. And his name was Sir Francis Drake. And he was not a nice man at all. And he was making his own rum on the ship. And you can imagine, I mean, how do you think it would taste? Pretty bad. Yeah. You know, the sea air is getting at it. And um, so he would ask his shipmates to actually try his rum. And nine times out of ten, they would die. <laughs> the dragon. And so in order to make it taste better, um, and to ward off scurvy, he would add lime to it. And, um, and then eventually, um, when they hit the Caribbean and there was a lot of mint, they add some mint to it. 
and then when they could get sugar, some sugar. And so cocktail historians were very sure that was kind of the pre-cocktail to the mojito. And um, I believe, you know, I really strongly believe that if you make it properly, you know, you make it properly with just the mint, simple syrup, pressing a lime, not muddling the lime. So you just have the lime juice, no bitterness, adding your rum, ice, and club soda. Um, it's just it's a splendid cocktail. It's a beautiful cocktail. It's one of my favorite cocktails. Hemingway's had quite a influence on he drinking culture. Did. Thank he? goodness for Ernest. Are you <laughs> kidding me? The daiquiri. The daiquiri. I love the daiquiri. Um, Whoever put it in a blender should be shot, though. <laughs> you know what I mean with the mix? Like. It's true. It's true. I like it with just the ice, the small, the crushed mm-hmm. ice. It's, 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 it's more refreshing that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about the idea of, in some ways, it was about masking of this dragon cocktail. Mm-hmm. Making yeah. It yeah. That reminds me, which is also something you cover in the book here, is, is the South Side, mm-hmm. which is very much the... Some people say it's a Chicago cocktail. Yeah. Some people say it's a New York cocktail. You know, I think uh, I know that the I've heard that the South Side, as the Chicago origin, it's like I think it was the Albanian gang or whatever mm-hmm. had the had the really bad hooch, whereas mm-hmm. like the North Side gangs all had the really good. And so they the idea is they made the South Side recipe with the mint and the lemon or lime, however you make it, to you know make their bad gin more palatable. Okay. Well, you know what was happening during that time? The South Side definitely came out of Prohibition, there's no doubt. Um, we're pretty sure it probably came out of maybe the 21 Club in New York City. I want you to imagine you wake up one day and you can't get any booze. Okay, so a lot of immigrants are making um, their own stuff and they're, and they're selling it. And I say immigrants because now on my father's side of the family, his, his, uh, his grandmother was making gin. But that gin wasn't always good. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't always very tasty, and a lot of times it was made with juniper oil that came from, you know, the Sears Roebuck catalog, wherever. And um, and then a lot of people were also cutting some corners with the gin as well, so it was very dangerous to drink some of these spirits. And so they definitely had to mask the flavors of what was coming in because it wasn't that great of quality, what we were drinking during that time. Now, at the 21 Club, uh, one of the stories cocktail lore kind of surrounding it is that it was named after the Southside Gangs of Chicago because they were friends in New York as well. If you ever go to New York, you should visit the 21 Club because it's still around. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty yeah, it's a legendary place. It's a legendary place. It's a wonderful place. What about, I mean, if let's say you want to be a student of cocktail history. Are there some real sort of classic books that are just like really good places to research, I mean, yes. and read? Mm-hmm. What, what would you recommend? Um, first, I would get your hands on the Savoy cocktail book. Um, there is a lot of reproductions of it that's out right now, which is fantastic. Anything by, we call Professor Jerry Thomas. There, He has uh, several books that um, I would highly recommend any of them. Just go online and Google and start purchasing um, for sure. Dale DeGroff's book, um, Craft of the Cocktail, is actually one of my favorite cocktail books. I use it as a reference um, in my teachings an awful lot. And right now, if you want to learn about the history, um, there's two books that I would recommend. You know, if you just want a great read, you know, if you're not too concerned about the recipes, a great read. One is Imbibe, which is you know by Dave Wondrich, which I believe is one of the best historical references for classic cocktails that came out. Golly, I don't know in the last, last fifty year, year? You know, I mean, yeah, the, the, the best one. You know, year. the book came out last year. That's probably one of my favorite right now. And then there's another one by Eric Felton called How's Your Drink. And so these are two great references. You know, if you want just a good read, you don't really, you know, want to 
necessarily make a, a lot of different recipes. But um, I always, you know, recommend visiting, and I do this myself, you know, visiting um, used bookstores, garage sales even, and see what you can find, and you'd be really surprised what's out there. So you said you had a story about the bathtub. Oh, yeah. So it's on both sides of my family, so, you know, um, it's out in this book. But um, my, my, my father is part Polish and part Irish, and his Polish side of the family, his grandmother, um, you know, she came over, and they had 16 children, if you can imagine. And they lived in a two-bedroom home and didn't have any money. And they lived in Joliet, and they lived on the east side of Joliet, which was divided into three neighborhoods. So they, the Irish, the Italians, and the Polish, basically. Now, her husband worked at a foundry, so he brought home some steel. They made a pot still, and during Prohibition, she would make gin, and they would sell it. Now, my grandpa, who was very young at that time, and his, his older brother, they would borrow the one car that was within these three subdivisions. It was happened to be in the Italian side. I'm sure they had to pay the guy off, and they would sell this gin. Um, they would drive up the back roads to Chicago, which I don't know how long, you know, in those old cars it would have taken them, right. but it's about 45 minutes south yeah, now. There was no Eisenhower freeway. Was like back roads, like not really even roads. And it was very dangerous, and they would pay off the police officers on their way, and they would sell it to places like the Green Door and different speakeasies that, speakeasies that were around Chicago. And that's really how their family, that's how they were able to survive. How old's your daughter? She'll be five in October. Have you thought about, you know, what what does it mean to indoctrinate her into cocktail culture? Or I have. I think about it a lot, and I'm really hoping that having me around the house um, is going to give her a great respect for alcohol um, because it is around in my household. I mean, I'm in my kitchen a lot, right. you know, crafting different things. She's known how to say cheers, Sante, and salute since she was one. I'm not going to kid you, you know, there should be call. Because <laughs> that's the way we roll in the Albert house. But, um, Adam Seeger claims his first word was beer. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we'll see, but I don't know about that. But, uh, but, but she did. She does know how to cheers, say cheers, and when it's appropriate to say cheers. But I'm hoping that being raised around it, that she gets a greater appreciation for what I'm doing and that it's not just getting people intoxicated and being stupid, that it really is taking something that is part of our history, you know, something that something that's been around for a long time that I consider to be, you know, spirits are antiques, mm -hmm. and then incorporating that into something we've always had in, in our kitchen at home, which is fruits and vegetables and fresh juices and making something really delightful and fun for our friends and family. So I'm hoping she gets a great respect um, for spirits and for wine as well. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah. It was awesome. It was a good time. Me too. Thanks for listening to this edition of Hungry Magazine Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and if you have any feedback, please drop me a line at mjnagren at hungrymag.com. We'll see you next month, and in the meantime, stay hungry. Four, three, two. One more time.